Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about ducks. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not nom, this is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. A toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. This week, we have got a classic, an absolute bona fide cult classic, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, produced and directed by Russ Meyer, with a screenplay by Roger Ebert, story by Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer. The cinematography was done by Fred J. Conenkamp, but also uncredited also, part, parts of this movie were filmed by Russ Meyer himself. It was edited by Dan Kahn and Dick Warmel. The music was done by Stu Phillips and William Luce. This movie came about because Fox owned the rights to do a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. Jacqueline Suzanne, author of the original Valley of the Dolls, turned in two drafts for a sequel that were unacceptable and not uh, greenlit by Fox, who in turn reached out to Russ Meyer, who was riding some success off of his movie Vixen. He in turn contacted Roger Ebert to write a script because he didn't think that the typical Hollywood screenwriter would be able to get his vision. Roger Ebert took a five-week absence from the Chicago Sun-Times as a film reviewer to work on the project with Meyer. A 127-page treatment was done in 10 days. The script was finished in three weeks. Although this is the only credit to Roger Ebert as a screenwriter, he actually worked on two other Russ Meyer projects, up and beneath the Ultra Vixens, but went under a pseudonym. So this is the only one where uh, Roger Ebert is credited as his actual birth name. Filming of this movie started on December 2nd, 1969, very shortly after the Manson murders. Coincidentally, Sharon Tate, who was unfortunately killed at during the, the Helter Skelter murders, was in the original Valley of the Dolls. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is a satirical musical melodrama. The budget was $900,000, or in today's standards, around $2.09 million, and it grossed $9 million at the box office. 20th Century Fox had high hopes for the movie, and in one case told Meyer that they were kind of banking on this movie to turn everything around for them. The movie was originally rated X, lowered to an NC-17 that still stands today, although arguably this movie does not deserve an NC-17 rating. But we can 
get into that as uh, we discuss this. When uh, Meyer was hired to do this project, he said, quote, I felt like I pulled off the biggest caper in the world. He described the movie as a soap opera for young people. Now, we haven't talked much about this, the plot here because I have two very special guests who are very more so familiar with this movie than, than I am. This only turned up on my cinematic radar a couple months ago, but in that couple months since... I purchased the beautiful Criterion DVD collection, not sponsored by Criterion, but, you know, if they're listening, we would absolutely love to be sponsored by you. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, I have watched this movie at least ha a half a dozen times, and when Andrew came over today, I was re-watching the movie with the Roger Ebert commentary. This movie is just so much fun, and... <laughs> I, without further ado, let me introduce my, my co-host, well, I should probably introduce myself first. That's, uh, that's the kind of happening here that we're having, and uh, it, it freaks me out. So, uh, my name is Chris, I'm your host for the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Andrew, my co-host, how are you doing today? I'm alright, I'm alright, good to be here. And Andrew, would you please introduce our, our special guest joining us for this amazing movie. Yes, I would like to introduce my friend Kate, who um, was a, um, obsessed with this movie with me back in the 90s. So we know the movie inside and out. We watched it over and over again um, and showed it to our friends. Kate, hi, how are you? Are you I'm the great. <laughs> you glad to be here. <laughs> Kate the Great, good to have you. <laughs> you're I think you're on I think you're in Cali so um there's a time difference and we're working yeah. it out yeah. Um, yeah I'm here in Los Angeles yeah <laughs> very good very good um yeah so let's get started usually I let Chris kind of like throw the ball so Chris where do you want to take this how do you well, want to start you know what I, I let's start with how you two for, because I, I, uh, I, I said how I came upon this movie was from you. How did you two come, Kate, up, come, up, come upon this movie? How did we come upon this? Was I, I think I was working at World of Video and I showed it to you. Is that right? No, this, uh, it was, no when I first saw it um, in college, they had like this, you know, college, you know, their own like little, what do you call it? I want to say short circuit cable or something like that. And so they would have a movie channel that, you know, the same three movies would run for, like, two weeks. And I was in my dorm room, caught, like, the, I guess it was the halfway or tail end of it, and I was like, oh, my God, what is this? You know? And so I immediately shoved it. This dating us, too. I took a VCR, or I had a VCR. I immediately started taping it because I was like, I don't want to miss this. Then waited when it aired next time. So and did... Paige, my roommate at the time, she was like, oh, this is beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And then... That's, and then you came over, and I think we watched it in my dorm room, like, nonstop. So you showed it to me. You must I have. Think so. You I must have. I don't know if you had seen it before, but I remember that's how I first discovered it. So maybe I showed, yeah, maybe I'm the one who introduced it to you. But that's great. You found it, you, you discovered it on a college channel that was airing it. Yes. Oh. Yes. I, yeah. I Love think it. that a, a, a good sign of a good cult movie is one of those movies that you show you you show to your friends and like you said you you tape it off TV. Uh, I had a similar experience back in high school. The first time I uh, I I watched Blue Velvet 
I immediately bought a video VHS copy of it, which is still sitting on my shelf today, that uh, was probably the only movie that I would carry around with me because I can guarantee that the, the kind of people I hung out with in high school, it's the kind of movie that they would dig. And that's just the sign of a yeah. great cult movie. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I have a question. Have either of you, because I have not, seen the original Valley of the Dolls? I have. Have you, Kate? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Very, oh, very, yes. very different movie. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, a, Go on. I loved anything Jacqueline Suzanne, so this was... Oh, wow. Right my alley, and then, and then had to kind of figure out, okay, how it's like slightly, or I guess in, in a way it's slightly connected, or I guess it was like, um, like Chris was saying, it was originally supposed to be, the, you know, a sequel, um... In with um, like Aunt Susan was supposed to be Ann Wells, um, I think in the very very first draft. But so there's that kind of connection to it. So anything, anything Jacqueline Suzanne, yeah, Valley Vidal, et cetera. I, so, I love well, Chris. Chris also told me that there was a subplot. There was a lesbian subplot in Valley of the Dolls, Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls, that was yeah. filmed. That was actually filmed for the film, but then was cut from the from the Valley of the Dolls film. And so Roger Ebert wanted to put that into Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, flesh it out, so to speak. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, so this is some interesting backstory here with uh, Jacqueline Suzanne. Now, we're, anyone that's seen the movie is very familiar with the disclaimer that begins this movie, that this movie is in no way... <laughs> related to Valley right. of the Dolls. <laughs> that, dis that disclaimer was only put in because Jacqueline Suzanne sued 20th Century Fox. No way. Yes. <laughs> so to appease her, and because she said it was ruining her reputation, uh, they put the disclaimer in. Uh, so, so, that, so it was, okay, all right. So what happened is that neither Russ Meyer nor Roger Ebert had seen the original Valley of the Dolls when they, when they initially took on this project. They then watched the movie at a screening room at 20th Century Fox, watched it, and said, okay, what are we going to do here? <laughs> so they kind of took the archetypes. Um, if memory serves, the original is is not a rock and roll group like in no. Beyond. It's uh, just actresses trying to make it in Hollywood. Yeah. Patty, uh, Patty Duke plays a Streisand type of character who's making it on Broadway. And we should note, if you're not familiar... Uh, she, she, she's, a, she's, she's a singer, right? She's a Judy Garland, too. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. She's supposed to be... Right. It's fashioned after young Judy Garland. She gets, she gets hooked on... On, on barbiturates... The downer, yeah, the dolls that... And Mary's a gay director. Oh. Yeah, I yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and then Judy Garland was yeah, going to play... Judy Garland was, was going to play Helen Lawson, was filming and was recording uh, the right. songs. And when... My, my understanding is that when she found out that the Patty Duke character was based on her, she quit. That, but I could be wrong about that. But she did quit, and she was replaced by uh, Susan Hayward. So... The dolls in both of these titles refers to downers, girls, yep. and the original movie yep. deals with actresses trying to make it in Hollywood. Uh, Ebert said that he said that it was kind of a ridiculous story, 
the original, and it was played so straight that it almost made it even more ridiculous. So he just kind of embraced the inherent camp that was kind of there already and really just... Blew it out of the water. Yeah. Really. Now, I want to mention here for a minute, like when I first moved to New York, um, I was in a play... And we had a, a a cast party at one point, and they and they showed uh, the Valley of the Dolls, the original Valley of the Dolls, and it was like attending a Rocky Horror uh, screening. All of the cast had things to say to talk back at the movie uh, about th- throughout the whole film. It was hysterical. It was really an experience that I won't forget. Um, and just to kind of like piggyback on that, like. Uh, the original Valley of the Dolls, I consider a bad movie. I really do. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, I consider a very good movie. Um, that's just my personal opinion. But so in this in this particular situation, it was a bad movie that people were talking back at, just like Rocky Horror. Yeah, it was fun. So I, I just think it's very interesting that the first time I watched this movie, I I, I, did, I loved it. And then when I started doing some research to the backstory, I loved it even more because the things that you would nitpick and criticize about the movie, about um, plot points turning on a dime, characters talking to each other, and and but in a way that they're saying, and I noted this to Andrew, they're explaining their relationship to each other through dialogue. They're like, I'm your long lost niece, or that's my best friend. He's the champion yes. of the road. Yeah. This is all intentional, yeah. and that's what if you don't that I mean you can enjoy the movie regardless, but once you realize that everything was so intentional mm-hmm. that that was the point of this movie, mm-hmm. it makes it so much more enjoyable, mm-hmm. and it kind of diffuses a lot of the criticisms. Mm-hmm. That I think were initially made about this movie. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the, the, I mean, you're supposed to be in on the joke. Right, they are complete, completely in on the joke, mm-hmm. and, and you as the viewer are supposed to yeah. be as well. And and Meyer, this is yeah. the way. He, what is it, the next one? Yeah. Oh no, please! I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go on. That, like the is that party intro party was um at that exact same spot. I'm like. How are these people talking to each other like they already know each other and they've just met, they know each other's names, etc. And it, it just, it's all just introduced who the characters are and keeps moving the story along. And like I think that the first interaction actually St. Ives had as with Harris. I'm just like, how was that? Where, she, where she says, uh, you know, I guess it's her hitting on him, but I guess she's a well-known porn but, star, so he knows that. But, but, yeah. well, but then we have Z-Man just pretty much leading, um, Giving expository left and right in Shakespearean verse, basically. Right. Basically walking her through the party and explaining who all these people are. Yeah. Now, for those of you listening, we're not getting we're not getting too much of the plot here because I was thought it was very interesting that Roger Ebert, when I was listening to this commentary, said that a lot of critics got too stuck up on the plot of this movie. To really get the movie. It's more of an experience yeah. than a plot-driven movie here. The plot is ridiculous. Pretty 
And the plot serves to basically shift the movie from genre to genre. I mean, you've got everything except uh, maybe, yes. you know, m maybe you yeah. don't have a Western, but I think you even have elements of a Western in this movie. But you've got everything. You've, it's a musical. It's a horror movie. Uh, it's a melodrama big time, a soap opera melodrama. And it's also it's, a comedy. So it just, it's just... Say again. <laughs> they, they it is in the end. It's actually a morality tale. So there's another. Yeah. So a, a couple things that I I, did, I found out in my research here is that Russ Meyer and his reputation couldn't be further apart from each other. Now he was known as the king of the skin flick, but he Ebert says that. Meyer was more so interested in comedy and melodrama over sex. He also, you would think that uh, Meyer might be someone that uses the casting couch technique that the, unfortunately, the vile Harvey Weinstein utilized. Not the case. He casted people in his movies. Yes, he casted very busty, beautiful women, but he cast them because they were right for the character. He also like, forbid s sex to, to happen, like, off-camera to the point where one of his movies, he actually went and, like, nailed in, like, parts of people's, like, dressing rooms so they wouldn't be able to interact with each other without him knowing. He was more, like... Wow. So his reputation was King of the Skin Flick, but as a person, he was much more interested in a vision. Yes... His art could be called gaudy or sexist, but I he's been defended numerous times by feminist writers because in almost all of his movies, the female characters are the driving force. They are the active characters in his movies, and the male characters are very passive. Instead of the male being the one manipulating or the male being the sexual predator, it's very much roles reversed and Ebert said that he ran the most chase set in Hollywood. Wow. Kate Kate riff on this a little bit because we talked about um the the female characters and what you thought of them. So go for it. Yeah. Um well that's I think one thing that one of my favorite things about it is you know they're this girl band, this girl group. But it's like they're not like Josie and the Pussycats or some you know little breathy little band. I mean it's I mean it's all dubbed, but you know Kelly McNamara, the girls got pipes. You know they are like a serious rock. Band. Yeah. Like like Grace Slicker. That's right. Band. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a, a great huge thing for me to see. And then and, and then I love too that the women were just you know sexually liberated and unapologetic about it. And, and that was just great for me to see, you know, as a young woman kind of coming into my own. And the only, the, the, the only beef I have with it, it then, you know, is for all of their sexual liberatedness that they all, like, get punished for it at the end of the movie. And that's why Josie's, like, the bad after school special for adults. It, it does become punitive at the yeah. end as, as the movie verges. My, my take on, on the women. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know, oh no no, no, no. Um, we do just, we um, yeah. you don't have to worry about spoilers on this show. The, the cute little 
wedding at the end. <laughs> right. Oh, right, right, right. I don't have to worry about them? Okay. No. Spoil away. Now, now I also, yeah. I also yeah. want to mention real quick. Yeah, well, that's it. Just, just the, yeah. The... Go ahead. The wedding at the end was very, oh, the wedding at the end was very, and also the theme music. And I'm sure this was all done intentionally, but it's very like Brady Bunch Partridge Family ending the way it kind of wrapped up there. <laughs> it is Which a big for all the like all the fantastic debauchery we, we've enjoyed in the movie, you know. And then seeing this is like, oh, okay. And now you know the the three heterosexual couples end up happily ever after, <laughs> you know, the end. <laughs> and you've got uh... so that was that's that, that's something that's something that I'm having watching again as, as an adult. I'm like, okay, I don't like that. <laughs> no, but, the I mean, of course. The the bisexual woman gets shot at the end, and I oh, I always forget that she gets shot at the, the end. The, the, well, the two the two the two lesbians both get killed. And yes. It's just like, oh come on, you know. And so we have this you know fantastic love scene with them, and then you blow them up, which is just you know a a, a trope that is done way too often. So, but, but I. Then again, this movie was all about taking tropes, so that's in a way I can't. But I think it, it speaks more to the character of Z-Man being a very gender and sexuality confused person. Uh, yes. the, the fact that he's shown... Well, hot as a kite. R- exactly. And, uh, so being on like, mind-bending psychedelics. Yeah. Right. And so I mentioned to Andrew, I'm not sure if you knew this, that the, <laughs> the fact that he has breasts was just a spur-of-the-moment thing that Ebert came up with. And Meyer was in the other room, and he just heard Ebert laughing. And he said, what's so funny? He goes, it's Z-Man. He's had breasts the entire time. <laughs> and I would say that nine out of ten directors would say, uh, no, he doesn't. Let's rewrite this. But we got the one in ten director that said... Of course he does. <laughs> of course he does. Uh, um, I need, yeah. If you want to get a retcon, it works because he's always wearing these frilly shirts. Right. You don't see him topless. Although that's, Andy and I were reviving this long, ongoing debate where we would keep, you know, rewinding and rewatching because there's a scene where we thought, is that Z-Man on the beach? Because there's an actor who kind of looks like him. It's not him. But that, you know, he's shirtless. But, um, on recent, it's not. It's just, it's just a guy with a similar haircut. Okay, so you both have said this to me. Um, I watched it with Chris, and I asked him, and he said, no, it's not. And then you said the same thing to me, no, it's not. And I, I just, for the record, I want to say that I thought Z-Man donned a prosthetic breasts for that party. I never got that he had them through the whole, through the whole, all the whole time. I had no idea. All this time, I had no idea. I... When we first watched Andy, I thought I thought that he had had a procedure. What? Oh, and so he was throwing a party. He was throwing a party to celebrate. But then, um, what's his face? Lance Rock has that line where he's like, "Oh, you know, you're a goddamn ugly broad all along." And I was like, "Oh, like okay." Now, yeah. That's what I thought the whole Superwoman thing was about. I don't think it. Kind of saying it's like a party to celebrate his transition. Um, or her transition, it was a party to, to kind of say, no, this is, you know, well, uh, yeah, I've been a woman all along. Or that he felt, he, she felt so liberated and was, and maybe then persuading Lance Rock was like, look, no, I'm not just trying to have, you know, 
homosexual sex with you. I'm actually a woman and want to have heterosexual sex with you. And, and of course, was very much rebuffed. Ah! <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, another thing that this... Sentences I don't think I'd be saying often. <laughs> right, exactly. There's a lot of sentences that you could say about this movie that you, you probably would not ever think you would find coming out of your mouth, but here we are. Uh, but another thing, not only yes. is the the the, the, fe um, the feminist uh, s subtext here very strong, I, I also think it's worth noting the uh, African-American couple seems to have the most... Yes, she does cheat on him at one point, but they... Other than that, they have the most wholesome relationship throughout this movie. They have a genuine. They have a. They have a meet cute, which you know, and then yes. not only, and then he's he's studying to be a lawyer. I mean, nowadays that wouldn't be groundbreaking, but. Given the fact that this movie came out in 1970, to have like the most intelligent character in your movie being the black, the black, you'd think he's just a waiter at Z-Man's party. No, this guy's studying for the bar exam to become a lawyer. Uh, I, I, I think it's a very forward-thinking movie. And does he does he end up pursuing that same ambition at the end of the movie? Yeah. He does. He doesn't give it up. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, let me let me backtrack a little bit. I just go ahead. When they meet, I love their meet cute. It's a their meet cute. I mean, even just being like, it's a meet cute, but it's like you can meet. Yeah, in the in the kitchen where she she walks in them and he's dropping the glasses. It's. Oh, they're cute. It's like, oh no, she's sharp and he gets it. You know, it's like these yeah. are, you know, it's yeah. there, but it's like you love them as a couple because she's, you know, she, she yeah, she's not just sweet and playful. It's like she's got a good head on her shoulders. You know, she totally sass them right away. And yep. And I remember, I remember us getting a kick out of that even back then. Like, okay, they're good. That's hello. Yeah. Okay. No, sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I remember, Kate, I remember us getting a big kick out of it back then. We were just like, they are so with it. They're just, you know, the, the banter between the two of them. They yeah. they click right away, and they, and they um, yeah, they have a really good understanding of uh, each other pretty much from the get-go. And their, their love montage is one of the, one of the funniest yeah. and dreamiest and sexiest moments in the movie, which is saying a lot. It's uh, it's it's beautiful. They're out on a picnic and they end up literally frolicking yeah. through the woods and then tumbling, literally tumbling into the hay. That was <laughs> so. Ebert Ebert said that yeah. at the time you see you if you see a black couple, an African American couple, it's it's so often they're depicted in urban settings that he said I want to take the I, I I want to take the black couple out let's have their love montage in yeah. the country I love it and yeah. every other love scene or love montage between the white characters is it's, indoors is all indoors at night usually at night yeah or you know hidden away at Z-Man's party it's all hidden away yeah. their their relationship is out in the open that's right and it's a beautiful thing it's, yeah I mean that's the yeah. little nuances in this movie that I think 
And yeah, I get why some people didn't get this movie, but it, I mean, it was ravaged by critics. Even Ebert, this was before Siskel and Ebert, but at the time, Siskel, who was writing for a competing Chicago newspaper, gave this zero <gasps> stars. Oh, no way. Oh, come on. How can you do that? This movie is a buffet. I mean, it's just, it's an experience. It really is. To, you know what, though? Yeah. I agree. I agree. We also have to consider, though, this is... Okay, so this is 1970. Um, 1970 is the year of my birth, and I love the year of 1970 for movies because I don't think there is an uninteresting movie that was released in 1970. That's just my personal opinion. So there was, there was a lot of crazy stuff being released that year. So I think... Um, you know, I think critics were probably very jaded. It was also very, it, it, it was also the end of the studio system and 20th Century Fox was in big trouble. Um, they had, I, hello, <laughs> Kate, you remember how much I, oh God, Hello Dolly. I, th I think I subjected you to that movie. Um, but Hello Dolly was in 1969. It was a huge movie musical that was produced by 20th Century Fox and it did not make the money back. Um, and that was one of many movie musicals, big, big budget movie musicals that basically ended the whole era of movie, big budget movie musicals and did sink uh, studios. 20th Century Fox um, had major problems uh, because of that. I think they filed for bankruptcy, actually. So, um, yeah, I just have to throw that out there. So with this transition going on, you have something like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is actually a big budget uh, mainstream film, studio picture, but it is pushing things into a very different direction that uh, a lot of the alternative cinema was uh, jumping on at that time. So there's, I, I think of it as kind of a bridge, even though, even though it is very much a big splashy mo movie, um, I think of it as kind of a bridge into the more uh, conscious things that were going on in the 70s later. That's just my take. So, yeah. something that I... I a lot of what you're saying, we're talking about the 70s that were so ahead of its time. Like, a scene that I completely forgot about was um, when Casey's, and he's like, can I spend the night? Or it's, I think he was just going to sleep with you. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've got all the space in the world. And then she waked her when she was blacked out. And the movie didn't flinch from that, you know? It, yeah. When she has her scene later with Roxanne, she was like, no. She was like, this was a man who, when you were unconscious. And, you know, the, did God, when you think of all of the arguments and struggles that we still have currently, you know, Does he take advantage of her? I mean, she. No, I think we've got a little bit of a delay, but let me let me just say, does he take advantage of her because we she? Don't, we don't see it. 
I would say they took advantage of each other. It seems that way, and she does give him the dolls, I mean, for the first time. So in a way, she's kind of roofing him, you know, in a way. That's the thing. He shows up with, like, a boatload of problems, and her... He was already... He was already... Hooked on pills and, and booze because that's when Ashley kicked him to the curb. She was just like, you know, she was like, you, you know, you're all hopped up on pills and booze. You're no good for, you know, you're no good to me. Oh right. Um, no good to me in a state. I.e., because all she wanted to do was sleep with him. Right, right. For some reason, I thought that Casey was introducing to him to to pills. And then she has to have the abortion. Right. Um, and so that's where. And there was a being on the casting couch. Yeah, I think it, it, it. The scene kind of reads that way, where he's just, just he's just kind of wanting to like sit and talk, and I think she just wants to be checked out. You know, I mean, she was very addicted. You know, to both pill, you know, the doll. Well, she was addicted to the dolls and booze at that point, and um, and so it. 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 They don't show what happens, but you just see her freaking out the next morning. Um, but then pregnant has to have the abortion, you know, rock and puts it in clear terms. You know, this is a man who raped you when you were unconscious. Uh okay. There's a there's a there's a couple different yeah I mean it's it's kind of ambiguous because they're clearly both drunk they're both high he shows up and like instead of like dumping all his problems onto her she's like well have some pills and a chaser with with booze uh. But I mean, that's the. I, it's interesting that you don't. I just. It's interesting that you don't see them have sex. That you don't see them make love. Um, when you see all of the other characters pretty much doing it with this situation, you only see the morning after. That's interesting. You never really see Harris and Casey um, doing it together. No, and, you, and like you said, you see every other character. Yeah. Every other love scene is, uh, you know, shown explicitly. This one is, uh, is not. And mm-hmm. again, th- this everything in this movie is so intentional that that, you know, that was an intentional choice on uh, both uh, Ebert and Meyer. Um, let's kind of get away from the heavy <laughs> aspects of this movie and more so into some of the fun. Um, oh no no no! It's it's fine. Um, well, this but, is that's what this is about. We 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 like to we've talked some real dark depressing movies here, <laughs> yeah. so that that's that's quite all right. But I just yeah. I, I I think that I think it was interesting thing. Oh, my memory of my memory of this movie is that it's such a contextual. Kate, you're dropping out. Hold on. Can you repeat what oh. you're saying? Sorry. That's okay. Oh. Of all, this is, the, is just a you know crazy, funny, silly movie, and to be like, oh, did that? It was like, okay, wow, that was a 
series issue that they, you know, that they brought up was interesting to see. And it's it's handled in a serious way. There are no jokes made about it. There's a, a, a frank discussion yes. about whether or not she should have the abortion. Um, it's it's handled in a very serious and mature way. <clears throat> I, I do want to say I used to think of this movie as, as crazy fun as well. And this last viewing, I, I was actually disturbed by it. Um, the murders really, really got to me. And uh, that's something that never happened to me before when I watched this movie. Yeah, the, the ending is very, very dark. The movie takes a very dark turn at the end. But uh, we'll get to the ending, but... Uh, what I do want to talk about um, is, some, is some, something interesting about how the humor is conveyed in this movie. It's very meta. It's very aware of itself. An insider, very L.A. insider. It's, it's insider, but they also, it's also shown, especially in that, that rapid cut montage in the beginning about L.A. Yes. That editing is so ahead of its time. That... That's what we call MTV editing now, the rapid cuts every second. Totally. So, so much of this movie, yeah, you know, with it, yes, yeah. This movie, I think it's like, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, like you said, it's almost like click, click, boom with the dialogue and the music. And just, and then, but it carries it throughout the film where it'll change, you know, from one scene to another. Energy, yeah, the energy, yeah. the energy yeah. is is runs throughout this movie. I love it when it turns pure soap opera with the with an actual organ playing, you know, on the soundtrack, and bam, you're into major melodrama. When they're in the hospital, actually, um, there's a scene in the hospital. It's complete, complete soap opera melodrama. No unabashed, no qualms about it. No, you know? they they embrace every single trope. That they and cliche and cliche, yeah. That they invoke, they embrace, and yeah. that's why this movie works. Now, it's very interesting to note that while the movie is very, very funny, and there's a lot of quote. I mean, this movie is endlessly quotable. It's very interesting to note that one of the actors went up, went up to Ebert, and said, "So I'm reading the script, and it's." I think this is a comedy. <laughs> and Ebert said, yeah, it is. Why do you ask? And he said, well, because Russ is directing this like a serious drama. <laughs> and Ebert had a conversation with him, and he said, this is what Russ Meyer said. He said, actors aren't funny if they think they, they're being funny. That's true. They need... They need to be aware that it's funny, but they can't act. And I think that's the sign of why the comedy... In the, I mean, comedy is very subjective, and it can be done very over the top. But I think the comedy in this movie is that it is played as a serious melodrama from the characters. And yes, they are aware that it's a very out-there kind of thing, but the way that they were directed... I think it just adds to how the comedy comes across in this movie. It's, it's, there's, they're totally invested 150% in what they're doing. The, the lead, Kelly McNamara, um, the actress is, is, Carrie, you know, 
I, I think she carries this movie, which is saying a lot because you don't need uh, one person to carry this movie, but her performance really does. Kate, I remember uh, we used to love her and uh, like at the beginning when she's at her aunt's house and she's eating at the table and her eyes are literally <laughs> like saucers. They're just huge. And it's almost like she was directed to have the biggest eyes in the, you know, in the movie at that scene. And it's just like, you know, it's you. It, it's bizarre and it's and it's funny and it's like you're. She's, she, she's eating. She's. She's eating. What is she? Chopper's quarter that Thousand Island dressing. Yeah. But. Some huge thing. It just. She's. She's eating the salad. Like. She had the British accent. That comes and goes. I. I love. I love that British accent that comes and goes. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, I'm a capitalist baby. Right, exactly. No, but she's eating salad. Yes. She's eating salad like it's the first That's time she's. One of my favorite lines. She's like, I don't think you recognize this. I'm a capitalist baby. Yeah. Right. Right. Chris, what you're yeah. saying. I was saying she's eating the salad at the dinner table like it's the first time she's ever seen or eaten the salad. Like yeah. her eyes light up like a kid on Christmas. Yo, yo, it reminds me of Elizabeth Berkeley and yeah. Showgirls. That same type of, you know, over the top, you know, everything passing the ketchup becomes a huge thing. You know, and I and I used to show Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Showgirls yeah. as a double feature at parties and it would be a hit. I mean, they go back to back almost. We're going to do Showgirls I think this month. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so can, can we? Are we? Yeah, these two films are actually very, very good. Yeah, and and I also want to mention I always, sure. yes, I always bring up um, Moulin Rouge. I love Moulin Rouge, but this movie reminds me of Moulin Rouge very much in the same way the the way the way that it's edited, the way that it's presented, completely over the top, and you have to be in on the joke. Otherwise, you need to just not watch the movie. And if you can't watch... <laughs> it's almost like if you can't watch the movie, then you're incapable of having a good time. It's Yeah, it's just a fun movie. And I think... This is my theory uh, of why it didn't strike well with the critics. Uh, obviously, the audience was there from the very beginning because the audience got it. The critics, I think, were expecting... Again... You shouldn't have expectations about a movie like this. I think they were expecting a more serious follow-up. To Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. And so when they got something like this, they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. They didn't, get, they, didn't get the, they didn't get the joke. Yeah. They looked at it, and like I said, they, they picked apart a lot of the things. Is the acting great? Some of the acting is really, really good. Some of it, you could tell that these are Playboy playmates that maybe don't have the acting. This is the like their first. You could tell not that they can't act, but you could tell that this is like my first time on screen. Like I don't have, I, I don't have a polished technique yet. Um, but I buy it. I buy oh, no, all I, of them. It's not that you don't buy it, but I think that it's one of the things though that you 
you diffuse all these criticisms by saying that this movie is very meta. It's very yeah. aware of itself. It's very and it's so intentional. Everything is intentional, which is why when you say, "Well, this maybe this," I don't get why this character would say this, or you don't you have to. You, you can't do that. You, you shouldn't be doing. No, that. you shouldn't be doing that. Now, I I want to. I just want to. Just the original concept in and of itself with Kelly McNamara. And I want to riff on what Kate was saying. In the original Valley of the Dolls, you've got Patty Duke playing basically a Streisand-type character. In Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you've got Kelly McNamara um, being in a rock and roll band and being a rock singer. And both, both movies, I think all the actors were dubbed, so including Patty Duke in the original one. So um, it, to give Kelly McNamara that Grace Slick singing voice is there's something really genius about that it really you know and it and it and it reads when she sings Candyman at the z-man party at the beginning with the strawberry alarm clock um it's a it's a it's a wonderful moment in cinematic history in my opinion that Candyman uh scene is a it's a kick-ass song and it's a kick-ass scene that's going on and she really gives it the chops. You've already seen her perform. Uh, they sing um, "Find It" before that, and there. And I think, I think, yeah, I think they're singing. They, they sing "Come, Come, What, Come to the." Oh, they do that traveling number. Come with, uh, come with me, gentle people. Thank you. Yes, come with me, gentle people. But when she does Candyman, it's like all of a sudden she's a star. Okay, and I, you know, there you go. You, you know, and that's what happens. All of a sudden, they become stars from that point. And I was, I was. Well, and like that, the music too. All of the songs they have. The are, soundtrack is just astounding. It's excellent. Let me mention and here about the soundtrack the when. Like the look on up from the bottom. Yes. It's such an amazing song. Yes. Oh, it's a terrific song. It really is. Um, and let me also mention that when they released the soundtrack to this, um, the singer who who sang for who's the actress who played Kelly McNamara? Let's get her name. Dolly Reed. <laughs> That's right. I love it. I, lo- Lynn, I love this woman. Lynn Carey was the uh, the singer that did the voice. Okay. She did the singing. Okay, so when they released the soundtrack, um, she, she had contractual obligations that didn't let her be on the soundtrack, so they put a Janis Joplin-type singer on the actual soundtrack. You can get both soundtracks now. The, um, the movie soundtrack with that singer is in mono, and then the Janis Joplin soundtrack is in stereo. Just had to bring that up. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Chris is showing me. (laughs) Kate, I'll have to screenshot this for you. Chris is showing me a picture in his booklet from the DVD collection. You probably have this in your booklet, too, of Harris and Casey in bed together, looking like they are having an orgasm, actually. Yeah. Okay. What, yeah. That's a cut scene. I was like, what is that from? Yeah. Right. Or a publicity still. So maybe they filmed that and didn't. It it didn't oh. make the final cut. I I I have some insight to this. Okay. So there is a lot of deleted footage. Really. Now, has it ever surfaced? Woo! Oh, I'm sorry we didn't watch that before doing okay. this. Okay. So uh, they were aiming for an R. Ended up with an X, got it down to an NC-17, 
And then Russ Meyer said, well, at this point, let me go back and put in... He had shot more explicit footage that they cut, hoping to get an R rating. And he said, well, let me put this back in the movie if it's already going to be an NC-17. And Fox said no. Wow. So there there was a lot of... I want to see the I want to see the deleted scenes. I had no idea. Yeah, there was a lot shot that was uh, taken taken out of the movie, and it was it's all a ratings issue. And nowadays, this movie, in its final form, is very tame for even for an R movie. But it still has an NC seventeen rating. It's still it's still technically NC seventeen. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I R? Think, I, it would pass as R, maybe it would def- now? It would easily pass as R. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest things that separated NC-17 going into X-rated movies used to be full frontal male nudity. nudity. That used to be a huge no-no. Okay. We get that now in our movies. Yes, that's true. So, there is no way that this movie wouldn't have gotten an R rating. All of the adult themes and uh, explicitness... Um, in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, though, feels so adult to me. I'm not surprised it's got an NC-17 rating, even though I think it would pass as an R movie now. Yeah. 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 I, the, one, the one sticking point for me is always the one in Roxanne's mouth. Oh. You know, where he, like, she oh. puts the gun in her, puts the gun in her mouth when she's asleep. Right. And then, and then where it blows her head off. But, like, that... Right, and you, and you see that at the beginning. I mean, cinematically, it's it's crazy, striking imagery, but it's all. I mean, she's she's a les. She's a lesbian character, and and kind of a kind of a kind of a pre. It gives you a heads up on what what you're what you're in for. Yeah, it's like he's forcing. A phallus into her mouth to kill... Oof, 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 oof. I mean, seriously, like, this is some heavy stuff that's going on in this flick. I, like, it really... Yeah. yeah. Any... You guys have any theories to why they chose to open the movie with the that particular... With the ending? Good question, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I think... what because you, well, you're just like, oh my god, how did we get here? What is going on? Yeah. I mean, it's... I think it's... Movies will often do that, you know, or even TV shows where, you know, they show this and then, oh, three months earlier kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. It definitely grabs your attention right away. You're like, holy shit, this is going to be wrong. Yeah, yeah. I also, just just to get specific about that scene where he puts the gun in her mouth, in the in the beginning, when he pulls the trigger, it cuts to Kelly McNamara singing her lungs out. Uh, singing, find it. Singing one note, one note basically, and her. And it's like a close up of her mouth, and then pulling back on it. Now, when you see that scene again, when Z-Man does puts it in her mouth and shoots and shoots her, then you actually you see the head blowing up. The second time around, you see the blood coming out of the nose and the ears. Yeah. It's really graphic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're 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 really honing in on all of the dark elements of this, <laughs> which is which is interesting because I would say, you know, a good. What, what I think, yeah. 
I was going to say a good, probably 80% of this movie is just hilarious. Yeah. It's very, very fun. It's very funny for for numerous reasons. I mean, there are jokes that, to me, it's, and I, I noted this to Andrew, um, because it's so it was just, uh, as a musician, watching them mime <laughs> the instruments, <laughs> to me is hilarious. Because I know, like, having played... Having played instruments myself and having played in bands, I'm looking at the way their hands are moving on the bass guitar, the guitar, or especially the drums. I'm just like, that's... Like, if you heard the actual noises that they were making, it would be like... Boom, 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 and but you still, but like, so like there's jokes for like everyone in this movie. Like there's, there's straight up quotable lines. There's just funny zingers. There are just crazy characters, like the old hippie couple that's always at Z-Man's party. Yeah. And that that old lady that's, she seems like she's straight out of a John Waters movie. Yes. She's like, I have to strap you on sometime. Right. <laughs> she's missing teeth, I think, and smiling exactly. when she, she says that. She looks like the egg lady from Pink Flamingos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Edith Massey. <laughs> well, and I love that that line is, like, we have to talk about all the magic that is Ashley St. Ives and what a treasure trove she is in this movie. Absolutely, what yeah. she just, I think, and she gave young Andrew and I, you know, 10,000 pickup lines that we couldn't wait to use on people. <laughs> One of them being, of course, you're a groovy boy. I'd like to strap you on sometimes. <laughs> I don't think I ever used that line. <laughs> <laughs> but go on. You can use it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and Andy, my God, that sexy, the sex scene with Harris in the Rolls Royce. There's nothing like doing it in a Rolls. Not even a Bentley. Not even a Bentley. Not even a Bentley. <laughs> so, and then again, this, yeah, that firm that just confirms the feminine. Like this woman, is confident, beautiful, sexy, manipulative. She's but, she's Sharon Stone, basically. But she, basic instinct. She knows what she wants. She knows how to get it. Yeah. And she she's regardless of. Well, and, and she just clearly asks for it. Yeah. Exactly. What she wants. Like, she, I didn't think she's necessarily. She's so. Manip- I mean, I guess she's seductive, but I don't even call her manipulative because she's so straightforward. She's like, "This is what I want. I want you. I want you now. That, that's, you know, and I'm gonna get you." That's yeah. very true. She is yeah. so blunt and so confident. It's like, it's just so powerful. Like, it's a powerful, I, I, obviously I'm not a woman, but like to see a, a woman like that assert herself and not be the damsel in distress or not be the victim of a male manipulating you or trying to get in your pants. This is just a woman that's just like, you know what? I'm a woman. I like sex. I like you. We're going to have sex. Yeah. And it's so refreshing, especially in a movie like I, I, I this movie was made long before I was even born or my parents had even thought about having children. Yeah. So like but to like yeah. look back at it and put it in that time frame. Well, and also the fact that she's a she's a porn star. She's a porn star and she's not shamed for being a porn star. Well, no. I don't I don't you know. know. Or, to, as, as you call it, 
Yeah, I mean, are they porn movies? Is she is she supposed to be like the Sharon Tate character um, uh, from Valley of the Dolls, who did softcore porn? Is she's I just in conversations. Or it's just porn. I mean, that it. Harrison, you know, talks about you know, oh, the the movie she's in, like they're dirty movies, and she's and that's what she's. Oh, you know, give me my, you know. She, yeah, has a, right. she has a great comeback. She blockbusters. Right, yeah. she calls it. Yeah, she does call them blockbusters. Um, and so I wonder if it's like a Sharon Stone Basic Instinct type of movie, but it's not really because they weren't really making movies like that back then with stars like that. I mean, it's basically softcore porn that are very popular and make a lot of money. Yeah. So I have okay. a, I have a question for the both of you. I think. Yeah. Um, so it's very interesting to note that this movie was after the formation of Playboy. Now, Playboy is relevant because two of our leads were Playboy Playmates. Yeah. Of the original ten Playmates, Russ Meyer, I believe, shot at least six of them for Hugh Hefner's magazine. Oh. Now, Playboy was was kind of a turning point of showing beautiful women just unashamed with their bodies but done in a very I don't classy might be a strong word but sh- shown in a very mature not demeaning kind of way an empowering way to say that this is the female body and you could tell but especially by the shots in this movie that Russ Meyer you know he loves women and he loves breasts he loves breasts <laughs> he's a he's we were wondering, we were we were wondering if Casey's lover's breasts were real, and I think we determined that they are. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering if so, these breasts are actually real in this movie. Kate, what do you think? That, well, <laughs> I could speak to. Uh, I know for a fact that Casey Anderson, portrayed by Cynthia Myers, no relation to Russ, the bisexual bass player, completely natural. Okay. 34 double D. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) Which she said she got from her mom because she just started developing at age 13. It's also a very interesting note that I think this is is something to to, um, be proud of. Her Playmate uh, magazine is not only one of the more most popular of all times, but her magazine has made it into outer space because... The astronauts. I'm not sure exactly which which mission, but they have to um, they have to sign in exactly what's going with them on a on on their trip to the uh, the cosmos there. So her her she's been to space in a way, not literally, but her images have been in space. And I also think that her her playmate spread, I believe, shows up. An apocalypse now is one of the things that the the army. You're kidding? Yeah, she's um. Wow. She's, oh, I told you that I think she's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah. she is beautiful. She is. Oh, she is. Mm-hmm. She is stunning, gorgeous, and, and she. And she is very much the perpetual victim, and I'm not saying that um, uh, you know, in a judgmental way. Like she truly, she truly sees. She truly sees the, 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 the. I don't know if she's naive, but she. I don't. Th- I don't think she's naive. I think she truly sees the the 
the hoopla of it all, the charade of it all. She's From the seen, very beginning, Z-Man, yeah. Z-Man is yeah. talking to her, she's, and she just looks right through him yeah. and, yep. and and stops him dead in his tracks. Yep. For the first only time in the movie that he's dumped for words is, is talking to her because she sees right through him. Yep. Yes. Yep. She looks right at him. Yep. And but he, it's and he stops. He knows. Yeah. And I think he, he's like uh, I I kind of get. She looks right through him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's just like I I see you for what you are, which makes me, which I then now in, in hindsight I kind of have an issue with why she would show up at that final party now. Well, I think she kind of was doing. What her pro, what her mentor was. That's so it's Roxanne, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think too, she had been through so much. They were both like, let's just go have a good time. You know? Okay, all right. You know. Um, let's blow off some steam. They had, nobody had any idea that party was going to end that way. Right. So it's very funny to me. The first time I watched this movie, that I was watching it, and especially the scenes at like Z-Man's pad, I was like. This is the 1960s Batman. Like, I could see Batman, like, bursting in at any second to, like, battle Z-Man's goons. And then they have the party at the end where she dresses up like... They dress up like Batman and Robin, <laughs> Jungle Boy, and, and Superwoman. I'm like... <laughs> yeah. So, right. So, so, Russ Meyer, so, Russ Meyer is doing a lot of 60s stuff with this yes, movie, but he's absolutely. doing it tongue-in-cheek. You even pointed out, Kate, Chris pointed out that when Kelly and Porter are in the bar, and, he, and he's asking if she wants something stronger than the soda she's drinking, she's like, yes, but they don't serve it in bars. Yes, and and Right. So that then she goes up to the jukebox and starts dancing to a track that she plays on the jukebox, but it's not you know what? It's she's not dancing to the music that Russ Meyer put in after. If you notice that's different, she's dancing to a different rhythm. But Russ Meyer put so I don't know what that track was on the jukebox, but Russ Meyer had to put in that wankadank dank type of like sixties almost western you know music for her to be grooving to so but like you were saying that this movie does have everything i think the ending i you i see western influences the western film genre influences in the ending when they drive out and that what is that a trans am or something to drive out into the country and take a walk no the um well it's a mix of scooby-doo and a western it's like <laughs> Zoink! Someone's in trouble. Yeah. Oh, you mean the party, the yeah. end, the, the murder party at the end that yeah. turns into a murderous thing. The, yeah. Well, and, I, then, and then the absolutely ridiculous scene of them taking Harris with him. Well, and, <laughs> I was. That's, trying to get out of the car in his wheelchair while people are being murdered. Well, <laughs> my. They, they don't call the cops, and yes, they have to like you know slow down for Harris to get him and his wheelchair in the car to go to the party where people are being killed. So if you're trying to tell me that's not intentionally played for laughs, then you don't know what comedy is yeah, because well, it's that gotta is, be. is perfect. Because I remember the first time watching it, I'm like, okay, they're gonna go save the day. Harris is gonna stay here because he's in a wheelchair and he's gonna call the police. I'm like, nope. They're taking him with them. Of course they are. Because that's exactly what they would do in this movie. And I love it. I love that. And then, while, while you know, in the midst of all this carnage, and Z-Man, with his breasts out and blood all over him, Harris suddenly can walk again. It's a miracle. I mean, this is crazy. 
I mean, this movie is, it just, you know, that's why it's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold back with anything. It's saying, let's just do this now, and we're going to do that. Nothing is too small or too big for this movie. Poor Cynthia Meyer. Well, I want to go back, like, Chris, Chris, you were talking about the, and the editing, and, like, some of the, just the sound effects that were certain, like, I mean, it's god-awful, but when Harris, you know, jumps off the rafters to kill himself at the TV studio, and they have the airplane bomber sound. That was so... I just had... I was actually... I was watching that scene when Andrew came over to do this episode with the Roger Ebert commentary, and he's like... He called it a stroke of genius to do the airplane sound. (laughs) And... But there's that, and then when... When Z-Man beheads Lance Rock, you know, it's the 20th century fanfare. That's yes. right. Yeah. I noticed that. I noticed that for the first time. <laughs> how could he? Oh, man. How did you? I mean, yeah. But I mean, I. Russ Meyer inserted that thinking that that would make the beheading a little lighter and that they could still get an R rating. I, I, it's an, it's another stroke of genius. This movie has so many little Things that you notice, you notice new things each time, and that's the sign of a good movie. That I, like I said, I only got this DVD a couple months ago. That was the first time I, I call it cultural osmosis, and I've explained this to Andrew, uh, Kate. What I call cultural osmosis is being familiar with something, a director, or a concept, or a movie, without having any direct reference to it. Um, no per- personal first. connection no to personal it. collection uh, Con- connection yeah connection to it at first like uh the most common example i use is as a kid i always loved horror movies i knew jason wore a hockey mask although i'd never seen a friday the 13th movie mm-hmm. so to me like i was familiar with russ meyer i think i'd seen faster pussycat kill kill mm-hmm. and i always whether or not i agreed with roger ebert i always would read his reviews because he's a very intelligent man do I agree with him all the time? No. But is he? In, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for a reason. He's very intelligent. Usually his criticisms, I, he always, even, even if I don't agree, he does make some good points. And the fact that this is the only credited movie that he's written, like, as an <laughs> Ebert fan, I can't believe that I'd never seen this before. <laughs> and I wish, and unfortunately, we're never gonna, it's never gonna happen now because he's unfortunately deceased. I, I kind of want to go back and watch the the other two movies where he's you know he he wrote under a pseudonym, but I, I'm sure they're interesting. I'm sure I'm the sure dialogue's good, but I think that just the fact that we had this this film critic from Chicago, we had the King of the Skin Flick, we had 20th Century Fox. This is never going to happen again. No, a movie like this is never going to happen again. Yeah. No, not in modern Hollywood. And. It's it's funny. Um, I, I, I'm not trying to age shame you guys. You guys got some years on me, but I love these kinds of movies. And I call I, I told Andrew this. I love movies that have teeth. Now this movie is light and fluffy, and it's very very funny. But this movie has teeth. Yeah, it's biting. It does. And it, it bites. sinks your. Te- I like a movie that sinks its teeth into you, whether it be a a goofy musical melodrama about this girl band that all of a sudden they just go to California it's just I, I just miss movies like this they don't make movies like I know, this anymore I know, I know, I know it's under the guise of something uh, that is very uh, entertaining 
but underneath it all, there's there's a lot going on. There's there's a lot of thought behind of this behind this. There's so, like, and that's the thing. This movie has layers. Yeah. Whether or not you want to take, you could take it at face value, and it's still a very entertaining movie. Yeah. It's beautifully shot. Yep. It's so colorful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. The costumes. Yeah. The set design. Yes. The music. Yes. All the music is so freaking good. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, you, and then you could, t- and then uh, that's why I love doing this show is that you could sit down, and there's so much to talk about. Yeah, the characterizations are excellent. I mean, even though they speak the way that they do, expo- you know, exponential. Yeah, but I mean, you spend a lot of time for a movie that moves so fast and has so many um, distracting elements. You know, for lack of a better term, you spend a lot of time with the characters. You really get to know these characters. Yeah, I think they t- they kind of t- they take shortcuts by saying, "Well, I'm your long lost aunt." Right. And, like, there's the this exp- money. It's, well, never- it's almost <laughs> like the expository stuff doesn't matter. Let's just throw it at you, you so exa- you can like know what's going on. But, that's a- uh, yeah. That's exactly what Eber wanted to do. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, I- I'm not interested." Like, yeah, you know that. Yeah. 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 We want but each. Ca- Yes. In the bar scene we were talking about, after, you know, Porter spills all himself over something, um, Kelly's like, you know, she's like, hey, barkeep, you know, give what, she just needs a rag or something, and he's like, coming at you. That's right. They're all in, they're, we, they're in together. Can yeah. we talk about Porter for a minute? Yes, because we can. This, this guy is oh, the... <laughs> oh, Porter, Porter, Porter. He is such an asshole. But he gets so... I love how demasculinized Demasculinized? He gets. Okay. In the sex scene? Right. When he oh, can't, he can't, he he can't perform. Yeah. Yeah. And then she, she got him in, so... Yeah. She got him so high. Yeah. Yeah, he's got... Weed dick? I, I guess. Know. I don't know. What I happened. guess. And, or he, she's, and she's coming on pretty strong, oh, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's so, it's just to humiliate them. Not only is she, she's but it's naked. But it's a, it's a trap. Like she says, oh, you know, yeah. at the end, she's like, don't worry, Porter. Yeah. I won't tell if you don't tell. Right. So she's got something on him now. But think about this. We have this beautiful woman, addresses in front of him, puts on her song. Yeah. <laughs> There is a huge poster of her band <laughs> over the bed, yes. and he is just like slowly undressing, and he's got like goofy boxer shorts and those weird like socks, socks with garters, socks with garters. <laughs> he is so humiliated. Like as an audience member, you're going, "This this woman's got him." Oh yeah, she's a cat playing with this little mouse, and he doesn't know what she. He doesn't know he. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. He's at the end. He's peeping through the window at the wedding. Right. At the triple wedding going on. Um. So he's been reduced <laughs> to being. He's been reduced to being literally a peeping tom. He's been reduced <laughs> to being outside. Yeah, he that's right. He used to be on the inner circle with uh with the aunt. Yep. And now the aunt's getting married. He's. Outside, yeah. I mean, it's very literal. He is outside the building. Yeah, they closed the they, they closed the blind on him. Mm-hmm. Done. Goodbye, Porter. I love it. I love <laughs> how they treat this character. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was thinking about that. Um, 
interesting because that's how he is. Even though he's in the inner circle, you know, all at the man's parties or even at Susan's um, studio, he's totally got that lecherous, creepy male gaze, you know, where he's just, he's such a lech. He's a, like, but he's a lech, but making fun of the whole scene, you know? And now he's just been reduced to, you know, like I said, that absolute peeping Tom lech. It's like, yeah, no, you, this scene is going on, the world's going on without you, and you're being left in the dust hole. Exactly. you got the generational divide, and if you don't adapt, you're going to be left behind. He's pretty stuck in his old ways, isn't he? In, in spite of being, oh, yeah. in, you know, around all of this very modern uh, setting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And... Yeah. It's it's played be- so dismissive of the modern setting. You right. Know, like, well, oh, it, this is all crazy. You know, when the, the woman's walking by with the, the chain and the body paint, he was just like, "Oh, now you have you know motorcycles here." You know, and it's which I didn't even know what a motorcycle was. <laughs> but, and we have we have this. Yeah, but everything is it's so dismissive. Yeah. Yeah, and he's dismissive dismissive of people. He's dismissive of the girls. Um, so that you know, it shows it it shows his character, what kind of person he is. Yeah, and uh, he he doesn't get it. I love I love his little his little talk. He goes, and furthermore, Susan, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that they habitually smoke marijuana cigarettes. Reefers. <laughs> he's like, and they were living reefers. He's like, and he, she was living with three other individuals. One was a male, and well, the other two, the other two were female. <laughs> um, just now, tell tell us, tell Kate, tell Kate how you know this speech. So I, are you familiar with the band Sublime? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. There's a uh, a song called uh, "Smoke Two Joints," and the <laughs> intro to the song I played it for Andrew is that speech verbatim, and it was one of those songs back when I was a, a stoner in high school that I would listen to all the time. <laughs> So I would listen to that speech, and I, for the longest time, never knew where it came from. And I assumed that it probably came from uh, one of those... uh, Reefer Madness. I thought it came from like a Reefer Madness. One of those propaganda movies. Yeah, one of those, like, pot will turn you into a sex-crazed devil kind of movies. And then I remember watching it, I'm like... Finally, it just like answered the question. I'm like, finally, I know where this line came from. More cultural osmosis. Yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. It, it's just one of those things. Well, that's, I had that exact same reaction with Mrs. Robinson's. Would you like me to seduce you? Oh right, from Too Funky. Trying to tell me. It was at the beginning of George Michael. Yes, Too Funky. Yep. So when my friend and I in high school saw that, um, saw the graduates for the first time, we were just like. Yeah, we were like that the Leonardo DiCaprio meme. You know, he's pointing. He's like, "That's it, that's it." Pointing at this. <laughs> you got your. <laughs> you got your feet up, pointing at the screen with a beer in your hand, going. They said it. They said it. Well, this is, this is. I mean, this is kind of a case in point of how Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has pervaded into our culture. Of course, I don't. I, we mentioned it before we started recording. I don't think we've mentioned it since. Uh, this is my friend. This is my happening, and it freaks me out. Was immortalized forever in Austin Powers. I think the first movie. Yeah. So we've got that going on as well. It's endlessly quotable. It like, is. You could just like. I want the screenplay. I want to. <laughs> I want to read all that they say. It. It just. I mean. Well, that's- Let's talk about Z speeches. Um, okay. Where his just they're Shakespeare- infinitely quotable. They're Shakespearean. Yes. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. That's um oh, okay. Well that's 
one of my absolute favorites, of course, is Z-Man's, where he was like, you know, I, all everything he says to the Jungle Lad right before he kills him is pretty impressive. But at one point, he was, when they were first having a party, he's like, and I beseech you to get thine ass in gear and burn those loins. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he's, and then when he's, he's so furious that he's been spurned, he's like, yes, I vow it. Even this, what is it? Even, no, I wrote it down because I always misquote it. But yes, I vow it. This night does wane. You will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. Yes. Yeah. Holy crap, what a powerful. It's. Line. I'm like, damn, black sperm of your vengeance. That's, that's impressive. I know. You dare spurn thee who is superwoman? Yeah, right. Oh, it's scary, man. It's scary. Yes. It really scared me this time. Yes. <laughs> so Z Man is. Okay, so you know what, Kate? This is a good time to talk about. Blade goes snicker snack before he beheads her. Yeah. Woof. Oh, sorry. Kate. Oh, yes. So yes, I did meet. Sorry, go ahead, Andy. Yep. This is this is the time to talk about it. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I went to a screening. They had a anniversary screening at the Egyptian Theater here in L.A. And so a lot of the cast was going to be there. Um, Roger Ebert was there. Um, and so. And, you know, obviously obsessed with this movie. And I'm in the women's room before the movie starts. And my friend Tara is talking to this woman. She said, Kate, Kate, come over here, come over here. And I quite, didn't quite understand what was going on at first. We were talking and find out this woman was John Lazar's fiance. And he was at the screening. And so I come out of the restaurant. She's like, would you like to meet him? And I'm like, would I? I walk in the theater. There he is, you know, as a um, you know, mature gentleman. Um, he pulled out, you know, more. He wasn't, he wasn't the skinny little dude he was before. But... Imagine what that's like, Kate. You didn't. I, I, you didn't tell me about that. Wow. <laughs> to oh, s- yeah. sit to sit next to Z-Man while he's saying that on the screen and have him hold your hand and whisper it in your ear. It makes me. Ju- I I want to attend a screening sitting next to Cynthia Myers and just <laughs> she can hold my hand throughout the entire movie and she can say whatever she wants. Uh, but that's a great story. I. That's um. It was an amazing. It was such. It was one of those like, oh my god, this is really happening, you know. And it freaks me out. It must have <laughs> been a. It was, it was a life experience. Yeah. It must have been a blast. Was there a gathering afterwards? Was there kind of a Q and A or at least a, a hangout or something? Yes. Great. They they had a Q, they had a Q and A, and then like once and then after the, the screenings, um, I met up with um with John and his and his fiance one time. We just we met up for drinks. Wow. To, to talk, and we, I mean, they were lovely people. So, yeah, it was just... Wow. Um, but it was amazing to see. But it was amazing that, that the Q&A and to see people there. Like I said, um, Edie Williams was there. It just... Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, there's something interesting about this movie that uh, Roger Ebert brought up, and, I, and he makes a very interesting point, that this would have been the perfect... And I guess it did get some play as a midnight quote-unquote movie, but this could have been the next Rocky Horror Picture Show had they really kind of embraced that midnight screening show up the way you do. I think that it would have had, I think it would have 
easily been as recognized as not to say that the movie isn't recognized, but I think like the Rocky Horror Picture Show to some people is the ultimate cult movie. Um, it kind of, I, I said this to Andrew before, it kind of invented cosplaying before cosplaying was a thing. And what's cosplaying? Yeah. If people that go to conventions, uh, oh, comic, sure. comic book conventions yeah. Yeah. or movie conventions, they dress up like the Star Wars character, sure. they dress up like Superman. Now, did, did you have an... Ex- when, when Andy and I were in... We were rooming together in Brooklyn, and we threw a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls party. We certainly did. That's right. Like sensational 70s gown. That's, yes, that's um, right. You spent, yeah. you've spent all day at the... I was all dressed up like Dolly Reed. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I, I put... I you were at the hair salon all day for that, I remember. <laughs> and and I, I think uh, that's uh, that was the yeah. summer of... No, but I think I wrote in, in lipstick on the bathroom mirror. I think um, I wrote, thanks... Thanks for everything, Charlie. Love, Sharon. It was really sick. <laughs> that was really sick. But I did. Th- I think I did that. I think I wrote that in lipstick on the bathroom mirror well, for the party. Yeah, I, I, I guess maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That's really. Well, so so let's so let's go there on the show and let's talk about the whether it be intentional or not. The fact that the ending of this movie very reminiscent of the actual Sharon Tate murders. I mean, I think that it has to have been informed unless it was so, some kind of, like, bloody, you know, coincidence. Well, yeah. so the movie... It's definitely informed, because this they started filming five months after yeah. it happened. Okay. The like Dolly Reed outfit she wears in that opening party where she's singing Candyman is the same dress that... One of the outfits that Sharon Tate wore in Valley Oh. All right. Bow. Wow. Boom. I mean, part of it is, you know, a lot of it was they were reusing sets and costumes that already existed in the, um, Henry Fox already had, so that's part of it. Yeah. I was reading that, I guess, like, Dolly Dolly Reed said she cried when she found out that that, oh my God, this is something Sharon wore. So. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they they used a little, they bet pretty, this was pretty much filmed on, Backstage lots of 20th Century Fox with, with sets. Z-Man's pad was an unused set produced for Myra Breckenridge. Myra Breckenridge didn't use the set, so they just went in and they said, this would this is this set is great. This is what Z-Man's pad would look like. Oh my god, I can't believe that. I made Kate watch Myra Breckenridge because it's it's the same year. Yeah, and we will cover that um, on this podcast at some point. It's a trip and a half. It's not nearly as uh, wildly entertaining as uh, as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but it's but it, but it's entertaining in its own right. But I didn't know that. Okay, so the the movies kind of bleed together in that respect. Yeah. So yeah, it it it's not. Um, yeah, I could see how that would be upsetting to the actress, but yeah, they kind of just. They kind of just raided whatever they wanted at, at 20th Century Fox. So they, they kind of took costumes. They took sets. But that seems like a comment. That seems like a very intentional comment 
or commentary to have her wear that dress for that scene, you know, there's something up with that. That's right? yeah. That's that's almost like yeah. it's almost I ritualistic. Want, I want to get the DVD with commentary. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to listen to to, to Roger Ebert talk about the movie. I also think now maybe, and I haven't gotten to the ending of the movie with his commentary yet, but I'm curious to see that once they saw how much the ending of this mirrored the Manson murders, I wondered if it's so serious and so dark as, as kind of paying respect to the fact that actual people were killed. I'm not so sure, and it makes me wonder if that's what critics were responding harshly to when the movie came out. Too soon, too soon. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, I, I suppose you can make the argument, but then again, we're, we're, we, I mean, this is, if you're able to distinguish fact from fiction and say, okay, this was, these are fictional characters, it's... Yes, it's a very disturbing... The similarities are so pronounced, though. Right. They really are. I mean, down to being in the same city, you know, basically. <clears throat> and I mean, I think, the whole Sharon yeah, Tate connection. Way too, also, you know, kind of ripping off, like, Phil, the Phil Spector murders and things like that. Because right. it's, like, z with, with Manson, it wasn't people that they knew. They were doing their creepy crawlies and, like, infiltrating. And were like... Yeah. Very much. This um 
Andrew, you met you mentioned this movie being a bridge, and I see it as the perfect bridge from the 60s to the 70s. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to say, and I'm not so sure how much of that I pulled out of my ass when I said that, because after Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you never have a movie really like that again. Not until, you know, decades later at least. Uh, but throughout the 70s, everything, the studio system died, and everything started going back to basics with movie making, and budgets went down, way down, for the most part. Uh, and Things, things did, got serious, Things too. got very, very serious. So, so, but I mean, there still is, I mean, that... There is kind of a bridge still going on but with there Beyond is, the Valley because of the Dolls. It attacks those. It, it it tackles those serious issues. It's got one foot firmly in the '60s, and then I don't even think that this movie realized that it's got a foot. It's almost like this movie I couldn't see being made. So it was made in '69, released in '70. I could see this movie. The only other decade that I could kind of see this movie getting made would be in the Coke. Instead of downers, it would be Coke, but it would be in the 80s. Yeah, but I don't even know with the movie making that was going on in the 80s, things were so kind of, you know, uh, streamlined by that point. I could see this being um, a disco-influenced movie in the late 70s. I could see it in that kind of a setting with, you know, yeah. But I mean, once the 80s... They were talking about it being a bridge. It really, it's kind of ushering in this era, you know? It's like... You know, peace, peace and love—that's gone. That's dead. We're right. Yeah. Now, where you know things are things are much much darker, and and even with Kelly Blind, which is like I'm a capitalist baby, she's like I'm not a hippie. But we have. I'm, I'm here to get mine. Yeah. We have this very dark. I mean, with the exception of the wedding afterwards, the the climax of this movie is very seventies. Like this whole running around the house, yeah. gun in the mouth. Yeah. It's very like it's like a hard it's like a hardcore seventies thriller. It turns into this thing. So I, I think this movie again, this movie is like of its time and ahead of its time simultaneously, mm-hmm. which is just shows like this is a brilliant movie. Yeah. And if you don't get it, eh, it's not for you, and you're not supposed to get it. But it's a bo- <laughs> the thing is, it's a box of chocolates. I mean, it might have. You know, it might have um, uh, it might have licorice underneath the chocolates. I don't know what the, what a good metaphor is, but I mean, if you you can take it at face value and just have a good time, right? You know, get hopefully get in, inebriated, but yeah. not necessarily. Um, you can still have a really good time yeah. watching it. Yeah. Well, and you you will never see anything like it. No, right? it's just it's such an astounding piece of film. Just like. Groundbreaking, and even if you were to watch it today, you'd be like, "Holy shit!" What the fuck I just watched. Like, yeah. like I said, there's certain elements of this movie. Like, I can't, I can't. Maybe I'm harping on this fact too much, but that that montage when they're talking about L.A. is editing that became so popular in the late '90s. Mm-hmm. The, the rapid cuts, mm-hmm. you didn't see that in movies with back the then. with the voiceovers by with, like like two or three different people. Yeah, zap 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 zap. It's a conversation of um, yeah. one line. What are we going to do in L.A.? Yeah. What do we know in L.A.? Right. And then you see, yeah. so it's just. Yeah. And then the dichotomy of L.A., like you know, glamorous beauty, p- poverty, uh, yeah. you know, d- debauchery. Right. Yeah. It's. 
it's like yeah. you, you didn't see that back in the 60s and the 70s. No. And you almost didn't see it again until the 90s. Like that kind of rapid editing has become par for the course now. Now it's just like overdone. Yeah. Like half the movie would be shot that way yeah. now. And yeah. extend we had this one montage and the rest of the, it, and it fit that's why it fits so perfectly in the movie. Because it comes out of nowhere. Well, and I, think, I think you called that, Chris. You said it was, it was, you said it was like MTV editing, and it really was. Like, okay, right. We weren't going to see this again for another, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just amazing to me that, I mean, that sort of prolific movie making was being done at such a time, and it didn't get recognized. And, and Ebert talked about how some of, like, the the filming styles uh, that their um, their travel from the east coast to L A where where it's them in the van and it's superimposed over a map he said at, even at the time in 1969 that was a dated way of doing things sure but they just embraced it so well and then we have these we have a several scenes where the band is performing and on one side we have Harris. And on one side of the screen, we have Z-Man. Z-Man. And they they keep... All their acting is done facially. Mm-hmm. It's them, like, going through, like, mm-hmm. like concern, deception, mm-hmm. worried. Well, and, and at the beginning, it's Harris who's enjoying himself in the studio. Um, and Z-Man, who's kind of, you know, not having a good time. And then that changes. But yep. I, I think maybe by the time, I don't know if the yeah. recording look on up from the bottom, yeah. but then by that point, Harris is not having a good time, and Z-Man definitely is. This is his ball game now. Yeah, he's been pushed to the curve. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. And, and he's, made the band, he's made the band go dark. He's made the band, uh, you know, start singing about very dark elements of fame. Right. Yeah. Um, There's a great... I think they released... Um, Look on up from the bottom, which has been covered by other bands, by the way. I think, but what I think when they released it as a single from the soundtrack, uh, there's a great visual that has, I think it has all of them standing. Wait, you're down in a hole, and you're looking. You're literally looking up at the cast looking down at you. I don't know if you guys have seen this, uh, this graphic. Yeah. No, but yeah. that's, that's that's the album cover for the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls record. Yeah. Oh awesome. wow. Okay, got it. So, in a way, we we have music videos before music videos were a thing. Yeah, kind of. I it, mean, it is. It's it is a musical, but it's very much music videos. Yeah, yeah, because the, sequence. Yeah, before before musical. Uh, very. I'm not that familiar with musical movies, but very often, you see the person singing and maybe dancing. I'm thinking of like The Hills Are Alive. She's sure. She's making, the, but in this movie, it's very music video style yep. like we've got different visuals going on instead of just focusing in on the performance we have it's i mean it's just and, ahead and, of its time and each song does comment on what's going on so right. you do have relevance going on with the oh, songs you've got yeah. um the sweet talking candy man yeah. is z-man yeah she's singing it right to him that's right he's a sweet talking candy man right and, you know, it's not Willy Wonka chocolates, this guy. He's got uh, psychedelic mushrooms and all sorts of pills going. It's it's just a movie that, like, uh, it, I've watched it 
Like I said, half a dozen dozen times. I am I'm so tickled pink that you love it that much. I, That's I, great. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, because Kate and I watched it over and over, and, and as as we've said, we showed it to friends. It's one of those. Mo- it's just there's just. I mean, it's. I don't know. You you can't, almost can't put into words. Like instead of trying to describe it, and again, we haven't talked about the plot in this movie because the plot is secondary to. The experience of mm-hmm. this movie, mm-hmm. and in certain movies that can be a detriment. But this—that's what this movie's riding on. But it's written so well. Russ Meyer. This is—it's been described as his best movie, and I haven't seen, admittedly, a lot of his other movies. But I could—I would warrant a guess that this is probably his. It—it. It, I think it's his biggest budget. It absolutely is. Yeah. It might not be... Which puts it on a different level. Yeah. And they spent all of that. You see all of that yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. and, and this movie yeah. came in... Well, I, think, I think with Russ Meyer, a lot of people know Faster Pussycat. Yeah. And I think I like this one better. Yeah. absolutely my favorite. Yep. This I movie actually came in under budget. What? How did they pull that off? They were... Like I said... They reused all those sets and costumes. Instead of design... Unknown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. The actors were all unknown. Yeah. They hired the two, you know, the two... Yeah. The, um, two of the three band members are Playboy Playmates with very other acting credits to their name. The drummer was a fashion model. A lot of unknowns were hired, and... And I can't, I can't say enough how much I loved their performances. Even if they're not really good actors or actresses, I just loved them. I felt so it w- sincere. It works you know. for this movie. Yeah. Similar to, like, especially, yeah. especially early John Waters movies. Is I, don't, the acti- I don't even think the acting is that bad. No, I think their acting is actually pretty good. I, you know, that's... <laughs> I'm the actor here. Okay, I should okay. be able to... <laughs> The the intimate scenes, they're able to shift back and forth, you know, from like, you know, the camp to the... I mean, that takes a lot. It does. And I'm sure they were directed really well, but... um, I absolutely buy all the three bandmates as friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you buy buy the chemistry... Like, the the three female leads. I'm like, I totally get that they've been friends forever. Yep. And you you, you buy the chemistry, and again, going back to the African-American couple... They have, like, I I totally buy their relationship, and I think it's... They're so sweet. They are. And, you know, despite her her one mistake, it's easily the most wholesome of relationships in this movie. It's the most genuine. Um, Yeah, it is. is, And you you see... You see when... Kelly and Harris make yeah. their decisions to betray each other at the beginning. I found that very interesting this last time that I watched it. When Kelly makes her decision is is when she introduces Harris to Z-Man as her dot, 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 manager and not boyfriend. Uh, and then when Harris makes the decision with Ashley to, to do it in the, in the Bentley, that's his decision as well. So I, I appreciated that they had moments that you could really see where they make those decisions right you know and you see the you see, you see the moment when ashley uh dumps uh harris and decides to emasculate him by accusing him of being gay or possibly being gay so you know everything is everything there's there are no 
there's nothing that's skipped over really so much in the characterizations. You see, you see what's going on in their head and the decisions that they make for better or for worse. You know, and during during this journey that they take, a lot of the decisions they make um, are not basically wise decisions. And so that's where the m- morality tale comes in. Also, this movie, I think, has been criticized for being homophobic, and I think that's an unfair criticism. Because of Z-Man being trans and chopping off the head of um, Lance? Yeah, not even that. Like, when... At, at Z-Man's party, when he's going through, you have two heterosexual couples having sex. They're not disturbed. But he kicked out the two gay men out of his bedroom. I don't know. think he kicked them out. I think they, they just got up and left. I don't remember him saying that they had to leave. Because I don't remember... That's why you say it's an unfair criticism. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a good... No, that's, 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 that's a good point. That's a good point. There was... But still, that they... They felt they, they had to get up and leave. They, to everybody else who just, you know, continued, continued screwing undisturbed. No. There is, I mean, there is. There is. And this is this is indicative of, of Hollywood on some level, Kate. I, I think you'll agree. There is kind of a bit, you know, an intentional downplaying of anything that's homosexual. Kind of like, okay, let's let's not bring that out in the open too much. Like it has to stay all, in that hidden yeah, room. For all of its excesses, there still is that kind of uh, through line going throughout the movie. Right, and I could, I, I think a lot of the criticism comes back to that scene you were just talking about, where he feels when she accuses him or insinuates that he might be gay. Yeah, he immediately it, has it, to run away and go have sex with a woman to be like, oh my, I got to prove to yeah. somebody that I'm not gay. Yeah. So I can see where that criticism comes from, but I mean, yeah. just the fact that we have a trans character, yes, he's, the, you know, that's the problem. He is the villain of this movie. Yeah. Um, like, it's like um, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. There was a, so much outrage when that, yeah, when that came out. Same type of thing. So he is the villain of the movie, but it's not... It's not revealed to the very end, and the knowing that it was a it was the thought that Roger Ebert had just a spur of the moment thing. Yeah, it wasn't like like he, a gimmick. It almost. wasn't like they were thinking, uh, "We need to villainize trans people here." It was just kind of like it was a like a, it was meant to be a joke. He's just like Z Man has breasts the whole time, and he, <laughs> okay, wow. why not? Wow. Um, so yeah, I could see the criticism there, but I mean. <laughs> Well, and also too, I, I brought this up. I brought this up in the beginning, but it's just yeah that the that the um the lesbian couple gets murdered. Yeah, the lesbian that, couple gets murdered. Same thing. Yeah, that, 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 that's a problem too. Yeah. So it it is it is somewhat problematic. Um, I wouldn't say that the, I wouldn't call the movie homophobic. I, I I don't. No, I wouldn't put. I wouldn't slap that label on it. No, I think I, there's I, too I, much going on with this movie to slap a label like that on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. And also, I mean, it does. It does embrace the gay characters, you know. It does. It does. It, but there are, I'd say, as Andy said, there are some moments that are like not the best. No, there are some moments not the best. But like going back to the two, the two men that are that are they get caught in the room. There's not a derogatory remark here made. Neither of the two characters, Z-Man or um, yeah. uh, uh, the woman, they don't look like. You know, shocked or appalled or like disgusted. I don't think you ever hear the word "fag" in the in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. In the original Valley of the Dolls, you do. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And actually, it's 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 said when the. Go ahead. You 
you hear it in you hear it in Beyond the Valley when when Harris is visiting. Um, oh, he Casey. Ashley, he says Ashley calls him the F word. Yeah. Okay. Or Ashley thinks I'm an F. Again, I mean, the beheading of uh, Lance. Lance. I mean, he. Yes, he he spurns Z-Man, but like he doesn't. It gets to the point where he's actually tied, like he gets tied up. Like he doesn't. He chooses to stay in bed with Z-Man for a while. He even gets up, takes a pill, takes a drink, gets back into bed with them. Well, he has. I don't think he has anywhere else to sleep. <laughs> that well, that was my take. He just wanted to go to sleep, and he didn't have a a home or a bed to go to. But he doesn't actually get like really like he's like it's an unrefuted. He's refuting the advances, but it's not until he's tied up where he actually gets really angry. Yeah. So it's not like he's like completely. It's not so. Again, I think we're, we're it's muddy waters. He's pleading, you know. He, he was just like he's like, hey, hey, remember we're friends, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I don't yeah. think. Yeah, I don't think. I don't have a problem with, with Lance and Z-Man. I thought that was now. Now, yeah, dur- dur- okay. when they're all four under the influence and they're having sex, Casey and Roxanne and Lance and Z-Man, isn't Z-Man giving Lance anal sex? I think he is. It looks like it, but I, I mean, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think well, so. That's pretty heavily implied. Yeah, yeah. So. so, in a way, like in a way, Z-Man is like the Baphomet, who's got you know male genitalia and female genitalia. Just had to mention that. So he's. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot to talk about. We've talked about a lot, so let's. Start uh start wrapping things up. We're not wrapping things up yet, but let's start getting some um some final thoughts here on on, on different things. Again, um some inter- interesting things to note um about this movie, and I would have loved to see this come to be, is that the Sex Pistols, the notorious English punk band, saw this movie absolutely loved it and said that they wanted to do their version they wanted if they're going to do a sex pistols movie we want to do it like beyond the valley of the dolls oh wow to the point where that's from the sex pistols from the sex punk band russ meyer (laughs) was going to direct roger ebert wrote a script the script is completed it was called who killed bambi (laughs) they did one day of filming and immediately ran out of money how do you do what? How do you run out of money one day oh of filming? Gosh. How does that happen? I don't believe that story. What the That's from I... Roger Ebert himself. What? <laughs> I would have loved to have seen. I'm That's sure. like the yeah. movie that I would lo- I would like The Sex Pistols, Russ Meyer, Roger Ebert, who yeah. killed Bambi. Yeah. And we're never going to get it. Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I I don't blame you. Yeah, that sounds as like a, it as, could be really something else. As a fan of, you know, I, I, I love punk music, but I don't love pop punk. I don't love Green Day. I love the old The real school. stuff, yeah. I love the real stuff. I love Dead the Ramones, Kennedys. the Dead Kennedys, the yep. Clash, the Sex Pistols, yep. the Germs. Yep. All those old school punk bands. Yeah. I would have loved to see a Roger Ebert penned script <laughs> for the Sex Pistols. Johnny Rotten, Sid Vicious. Give it to me. That would have just been like. Uh. So like, 
I mean, how it's one of those things like how can you not love this movie? This movie the Sex Pistols love this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you would think like I would I could see like upon first viewing like it, not that the thought ever crossed my mind, but it's not like Oh, I could see the Sex Pistols really liking this movie. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? So Who did, fucking knows? So they did they see it when it came out in 1970? I take it. Uh, I'm not sure if they saw it when it came out, but because um, they they formed they formed in, later in the 70s. Yeah, right. But they saw it at a screening, and they were like, because that was the big thing at the time. They were uh, uh, head was made by the monkeys. Oh, which we will also do. R.I.P. Michael Nesmith passed away the other day. Oh no! Yeah. Okay. So we're we're down another monkey. Okay. Stop it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not funny. It's <laughs> that's not funny. I apologize. Um. No, I love the monkeys. I love. It's an amazing movie. I love. See, if you guys ever, if you ever talk head, I. You want to. You want to come on board for that one too? So, uh, yeah, let me just. I will come on board for him. All right. Let me just backtrack. All right. I. All right. I. I love the yes. monkeys. Unironically, love the TV show, show, and genuinely like their music. Um, okay. I, apolog- I, I was be. I was out of line with the Michael Nes, especially just, since he was the most easily the most talented of the monkeys. They were a great band. That's what people don't seem to get. It's, it's like no, they were. No, I mean we we could do we'll we'll yes. get into this when we talk about head. They were they were, the, yeah, they were the Spice Boys. They were auditioned to be they, that. They were put together. I think Charlie like, Manson might have even auditioned. They were put together very much like a boy group, like NSYNC or Backstreet Boys was. But um, later in the career, they they took the reins and started writing and playing their own music. And they are they are all gifted musicians. And uh, we will get into this when we discuss Head I saw at some them. point. I saw them in concert in the 80s. Was it great? Yeah, sure. It was fun. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, no disrespect to Michael Nesmith. We're actually, we're going to dedicate this uh, episode to his memory. Stop laughing. I'm all right. Uh, Kate, do you have any final thoughts for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Um, gosh, final Obviously, you know, and watching and growing up and watching it as an adult, it just it it holds up. You know, I was entertained watching it, rewatching it as I was years ago. I've, you know, have bought it on Amazon Prime, so I can watch it whenever I want. Um, and then, if anyone who hasn't seen it, my God, watch it! It's, uh, it's such a trip. Uh, on the the, the uh, format for the show, usually people, since we do such deep dives into movies and we talk everything about the movie. The, the people that are listening to this right now, who are still listening, because we're almost we're, we're close to two hours here, um, are, are either just very curious, yeah. <laughs> but more likely, ninety nine percent of this audience <laughs> is listening to this because they love this movie as much as we do. Uh, Kate, they love it. yes, what well, favorite? Go rewatch it. <laughs> Absolutely, this movie is e- so rewatchable. Um, and that's uh, that's just the sign of a good movie, not just a good cult movie, just a good movie. Yeah. Uh, favorite characters. <sighs> Ladies first. Oh, God, Z-Man's probably my favorite character. He's a trip. He just, he just, 
he gets on the scene he just lights it up he's got those gorgeous eyes you know you're really drawn and attracted to him it's like I, I i when i was sitting there i was like oh my god you know if you were to recast this movie you know now or remake it nowadays who would you cast you no know? and i was like oh god i'm like it have to, you know i won't even go there yeah, but, <laughs> yeah it just, and and those it's it's, it's so it, the movie it's just it's so electric and it just it draws you in yeah and then and it doesn't let up no. no, it just keeps going. Exactly, and those mutton chops, those those um those sideburns that Z-Man sports. I mean, those are the bomb. They really are, defining character. Are you know, yeah. His whole his whole look, everything about his speech pattern. Which I mean, they even make fun of him in the movie. They're like, yeah, he talks like Will Shakespeare, but it's just yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's perfect. And it, yeah, like, and I think I mentioned it. It's just it's you know when you watch the movie, you want to be these people. You want to be parting with these people. You want to be as hip and with it as they are, you know, or, or just inhabiting this sensational world that they live in. I would buy tickets to a The Carrie Experience concert if it, if it was... <laughs> the uh, Carrie Nation. Oh, I'm sorry. The <laughs> Carrie Nation. Right. Yes. And there was... Wasn't there a bar in Brooklyn called Carrie Nation that we used to go to, Kate? Yes. Right? And we were, it's like yeah. when we were, it's like when we were so into this movie and we would go to hang out at Carrie Nation Bar like every night. That was like the bar to go to. Yeah. <laughs> so there's Hello. another cultural osmosis. Andrew, favorite character, favorite scene? It's, it's got to be Kelly McNamara. I love her. I love her. I can't get enough of her. Um, I love every scene that she's in. I love it when she's getting salty and talking, you know, shit to other characters, you know? <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> and then, like, when, when Lance is, like, they're in bed together and she's like, you seem to know a lot about me. I just, I love her. I love her accent. I love the way she looks. I love the way she acts. I love the way she mimes the songs. Candyman, I love that scene. Yeah, that song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we should, we should, uh, one uh, other side note. So that was Strawberry Alarm Clock, who were uh, best known, I guess, for the song Peppermints and Incense. Incense, not incest. Incense, Peppermint and Incense, which you could actually hear in the movie. Right, you can actually hear that song being played in the movie, but they played a couple songs in the movie, were very excited to be in the movie initially until they saw the final project and were not so happy about it. Oh, that's too bad. Ironically, they're probably best known now for, for being yeah, for being in this movie. Uh-huh. It's not one of those 60s, 70s bands you're just like, oh, right, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Beatles, Strawberry Alarm Clock, eh, not so much. <laughs> so uh, I, I think this movie is a gift that keeps... Yeah, right. I was gonna say the only. I mean, I was familiar with that one song. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but I, I I have more respect and admiration for them for being in this this movie. I this movie is easily a gift that keeps on giving because it is so rewatchable. There's so much. It's just so much fun. Mm-hmm. You pick up on something new every time you watch it. And you don't. You don't really. You don't really. Um. You. Your thoughts don't really stray when you're watching this movie either. You're pretty much focused on the movie. It keeps you going, keeps you going. Right. Yeah. You you um you don't daydream. You don't drift yeah. off and do the dishes or anything like and that. You pretty much like, wow, I gotta keep watching this. It's it's <laughs> yeah. so. I was gonna say, rewatching it, I was amazed how quickly it moved. Yeah. Too. I was like, oh wow, we're already at this scene. Oh, we're at this scene. Yeah. It's it's paced so well that 
I mean, the time just flies by when you're going to, when you're watching it. Even just like a, today, I was just doing some work around the apartment. I had the movie on, so I got the visuals. Then I had the Roger Ebert commentary on, so I'm listening to him talk about the movie. And it's just one of those things that at the corner of my eye, I just look at the screen and go, All right. like, this, <laughs> it's just so, like, visually, like, you could you could be deaf and love this movie. Yeah. Not that I would recommend, because the music is so great and the dialogue is so great. Well, but yeah, like, you could be blind and still love this movie. I mean, yeah, just listen just listen to the people talk. Like, that. that's a sign of a good movie. Like, you know. Well, that's it. Well, the dialogue, it's just, yeah. I want to be that sharp when I talk to everybody. Yeah. And that's why I... I, I I, I kind of want to watch the other Roger Ebert movies, although, you know, I, I don't know how much involvement he had because he did go under a pseudonym, pseudonym for them. So um, maybe someday I'll get to those. But for right now, I, I'm just happy that this movie exists. And I'm happy to... Oh, this is one of those movies that I... I, uh, I've slimmed down my movie collection. This, what you're looking at now is probably a third of what I used to have. And I've slimmed down Whoa. to just like what I call the essentials, the essentials movies that I will actually rewatch. I, I had the unfortunate opportunity of working right next to a, a used movie store. So I would spend a great deal of my weekly paycheck just buying movies. Mm. Um, but this is, this is a movie that is, if you so you own it on Amazon Prime, Kate. Yes. So yeah, I. So I can stream it. Uh, if if you if you want for about twenty dollars, you can order the Criterion two disc edition that has a booklet and all the extras and bonuses. It's worth it. It's, I'm looking at it. It's it's beautiful. I'm totally gonna do it. I, I, no, trust <laughs> me. It's, it's it's on my it's on my Santa list right now. There you go. Merry Christmas. So um. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up because uh, as usual we've we've talked far longer than we probably anticipated. But that's that's why we love our listeners because they they geek out on these movies like we do. So it's yeah. it's a great happening. It's uh, a yeah. it's groovy. <laughs> and uh, right on. We'd like to strap each and every one of our listeners on at some point. Stop with that line. Okay. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for joining us. It was our it was our absolute pleasure to have you on, and uh, we'd love to have you on a on. Thank you so much. I had a blast. I I'm so glad to hear that. That's I always tell Andrew the the best part of this show. It's just fun. We get to talk. That's right. We, we talk crazy movies. We watch crazy movies. Me and Andrew will sometimes talk on the phone. And realize we've been talking for like two hours about the most random movies. <laughs> like we just. We don't connect the dots the way other people do. No, we, we just play it. It's a game of hopscotch. Yeah, it, and it's so much fun. But, Kate, thank you so much for joining us from the West Coast. You! And, Kate, do you want to... Do you want to... You don't... Uh, do you want to tell us your, your occupation, what you do? You don't have to. Oh, I'm gonna not, because I don't know if I need to be representing my company in any way. Fair, fair enough. All good. All right, right, good. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. On I, I, I hope you're having a sunny California day. We're, we're having a drizzly, dark Rhode Island afternoon here. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's bright and sunny here. Ah, we're jealous. <laughs> so, 
It's for Eric, Kate, for Andrew. My name is Chris. This has been the Cult Film Companion Podcast. Hashtag Cult Film Comp on Twitter. Email us at thecultfilmcompanion at gmail.com. All our episodes available on ACAST. Join our Facebook group. Thank you all so much for joining us on another episode. We hope you had as much fun at this happening as we did. Bye.